Welcome to DanceCast. I'm your host, Seema Belmar. And for this bonus episode, I'm going to just muse about some things related to dance. Things I muse about all day long. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is whether or not dance really should ever be watched. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of dance out there that is fundamentally participatory. A lot of dance that does not happen in theaters. Even dance that happens, let's say a practice, a like a dance team practice on the UC Berkeley campus, which is a practice. It's just an outdoor public rehearsal and people do stop and watch, but it's not designed to be watched. And or like some kind of party dancing, electric slide, wedding situation, horror situation. It's meant to be participated in. And then there are people who sort of stand in the circle and they bob up and down or sway side to side, but they're engaging in it. There isn't this sort of distance. Now, I'm not here to bag on concert dance, but I just think that, and I've talked about this in numerous podcasts, episodes with different people in different ways about this kind of tension or breakdown between the visual and the kinesthetic aspects, experiential aspects of dancing. And I get frustrated and also relieved. Hard to say. What I mean is when I'm observing dance from a seat in a theater, sometimes I'm observing it through my eyeballs, mostly, like I'm privileging the visual sense. And when that's not working for me, I try to drop down into the kinesthetic sense. Now, folks will say, and they've said to me when I've been arguing this potentially moot point, that they're having a kinesthetic experience, especially if they're dancers themselves, that they feel the movement in their bodies while they're watching. They don't often go as far to say that they're feeling the same movement that the dancer is feeling or that they're experiencing the movement the dancer is executing in the same way that the dancer is. I think that's where kinesthetic empathy and its relationship to mirror neurons breaks down. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, they stuck electrodes on macaque monkeys' brains and noticed that when one macaque monkey reached for some food and stuck it in its mouth and particular neurons fired in that monkey's brain, the monkey who was watching that happen, the same neurons fired in their brain. So they call it mirror neurons. And there's this whole belief, and I can link some articles in the transcript at odc.dance slash stories, the transcript for this episode. But there's been a leap of thinking that this is like the neural center of empathy or something like that, that somehow these kind of what seem to be movement-based, kinesthetic, and also habit recognition things in the brain, that seems to be real. Like we know that we can rehearse a dance phrase in our brains And it actually will help us remember the phrase. And also the muscles will be activated in a certain way. I mean, this is one of the premises of Feldenkrais, if I understand correctly, that you don't even have to do two sides of the body of a particular movement because the other side of the brain will learn it. Or you can do it only thinking about it. And it will have these same imprints or inscriptions into the body. When you're feeding a baby for the first time, you open your own mouth as you lead the spoon and eventually the baby opens their mouth too because they're mimicking you, which again, mimicking and the mirror neuron thing are not the same thing. There's this amazing scholar named Catherine Young. I can't remember if, she, if it's her monograph or if it was an edited collection called Body Lore, but you can check it out. I took a class with her at UC Berkeley 
on like phenomenology that rocked my world. She's the one who introduced me to Merleau-Ponty, my philosophical idol. We were at a talk that was about mirror neurons and empathy or something like that. And someone in the audience asked the speaker or said to the speaker, so it's like monkey see, monkey do. And Catherine Young stood up. Maybe she didn't stand up, but she shouted out, uh, it is exactly not monkey see, monkey do. Because it wasn't about mimicking. It was about this kind of response in the brain that you can, what I just said, that the monkey who wasn't doing the eating's brain was acting as if they were doing the eating. Anyway, but I am very, very suspicious of uh, extending that to any kind of emotional empathy, social empathy, social justice, anything like that. I think you can have some kind of neurons firing in your brain and still be completely crappy toward humanity. What am I getting at? I'm trying to get at, oh, this question of watching dance and the usefulness of it, because we know certainly in many Western forms, I mean, ballet above all else, but in other forms too, yeah, actually even in hip hop, I think, and uh, Naomi Bragan, another person to read, dance scholar, fabulous. And I have talked about the ways that hip hop and ballet are very similar in the way that they hide or invisibilize or blur what is actually happening to cause a visual effect. So in ballet, the unbelievable exertion in the body, in the legs, in the feet, that creates the appearance of effortlessness, of sylphs and fairies and things, and princesses who never go to the bathroom because they're princesses. Anyway, that hip-hop does something similar. Uh, we, I think we were talking about popping and locking and all, those all the muscular tension and release that happens to create an effect are not visible to the naked eye. Like it's very, um, some people can learn it just from observing and some people need it to be broken down, but it definitely is not on the surface. And perhaps no effort. Well, I mean, if you think about the folks who deadlift, you know, a bazillion pounds, like, and they squat down and they grab the bar, the barbell, whatever it's called. And it's like, yeah. So I just did the lift to my shoulders and then up into the air. I was just gesturing that. That looks like exertion. And one can imagine the muscles that are being used. They're all firing. You can see them all. They're sweating. They're slick. So I think there are some efforts that are visible. I think automaticity, when we get into our habit movement, effort becomes invisible. When we are injured, it comes back, the visibility. So you think about like a little kid getting out of a chair. It's just like, bloop, they just pop out of the chair. And then you think, or they roll out of bed in the morning and just bound out. And then you think about, well, I'll think about myself like creaking and kind of like rolling to the side and like, eh, you know, having to like stretch everything out again and creak up into standing position. So I think there were phases of um, habit formation, habit gliding, habit coasting, and then habit breakdown that I think make up our movement lives. Part of what motivates me to yabber on about this is the frustration I think that dancers and choreographers feel when their work is not seen, uh, when they work so hard to get something onto the stage and then it's not seen. I know for a fact that they are going through incredible experiences through process, and there's been a lot of talk about process in the last, I don't know, 60 years or so, and the effort to kind of maybe make process more visible, to perform process. I mean, that's kind of part of the roots of task dances just doing stuff and watching people do stuff and the virtuosity of doing stuff that is not conventionally virtuosic. I, I think it's just a lot of the joy and pleasure gets sucked out of dancing when it is limited to its visual component. 
I sound like I want to like overthrow concert dance, but that's really not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to understand my own feelings about it. And I think that the value of dance as a practice, we know it's undervalued. Embodied knowledge or bodily knowledge is an undervalued knowledge, you know, Howard Gardner aside, if he's the multiple intelligences guy, I think he is. You know, sometimes a a piece of choreography doesn't really hold together the overall work, the narrative. It doesn't even have to have a narrative, but the structure, the organization, the the whole doesn't come together for me as a viewer. But these individual dancing moments or these individual dancers completely make me weep. I wonder if maybe there's a tension for uh, certain choreographers between this amazing amount of work and pleasure and desire and sweat and joy that comes from dancing big and big turns and leaps and jumps and all the virtuosic stuff and all the complexity and the inversions and all of that. Between that and then making a work that says something, that the work may not need any of the pyrotechnics, but it's so hard when you train for so many years to be pyrotechnical to then pull back from that. I'm not, and I'm not saying that's a value. I mean, I love pyrotechnical dancing. I absolutely love it. Mm, I'm not sure what I'm saying. This is hard. And then this is a tangent. I don't even think this is related, but I was going to do a separate episode called In Defense of Emotional Manipulation, which is not about defending being emotionally manipulated in a relationship with another human being that I'm opposed to. But in terms of like a piece of art or a movie or whatever, a television show, a dance. And Bill T. Jones talks so much about this in various interviews. Uh, there's one in particular, I will link it with Oliver Sacks, that is really interesting, where Bill T. talks a lot about the tension he's experienced between being taken seriously as a postmodernist, as an avant-garde artist, as an intellectual, as a philosophical person, and he has, of course, all of those things. Between that and his experiences growing up with his mother and the black church and uh, Al Green, he mentions Al Green in particular in this um, conversation, and how there is a premium placed on the more emotionally distanced artwork in at least the concert dance world and scene he finds himself in and has found himself in since the 70s, that there's a premium placed on that and a judgment against dancing to music, being virtuosic for virtuosic sake, feeling moved, being moved, emotional manipulation, being manipulated by the music, being manipulated by beauty, you know, these sorts of things. And I was thinking about, okay, why would one be so unhappy about being manipulated? I think it was Anne Bogart of The City Company that talks in her book, is it called A Director Prepares? Talks about how angry she was when she saw, I can't remember what it was, maybe Schindler's List, because of how manipulated she was by the music, by the cinematography, by the acting, whatever. Aha, no, it wasn't Schindler's List. It was E.T. I just found the book and I'm gonna read you the passage. Uh, this is from Anne Bogart's A Director Prepares, Seven Essays on Art and Theater, which was published in 2001. So, you know, by book standards, it's ancient, I guess. Okay, she says, quote, one summer afternoon, during the summer that Steven Spielberg released both E.T. and Poltergeist, I went to see E.T. at the Dead Mall. She was talking about there being two malls, and one of them was empty and ghost-like. Okay, 
Back to the quote. Because of the wild popularity of Spielberg's two films, it seemed that both malls, both cineplexes, were showing either E.T. or Poltergeist in all their mini-theaters. As I watched the film, I dutifully cried at the moments I was supposed to cry and walked out of the theater at the end of the movie feeling small and insignificant and used. As I walked toward the parking lot, I could see thousands of other people exiting the theaters in both the dead mall and the live mall, all making a procession to their cars. The sun was setting, and as far as I could see, there were cars full of Spielberg audiences making their way out towards the main highway. As I got into my car, it was beginning to rain, so I turned on the windshield wipers and headlights and saw thousands of other cars turning on their windshield wipers and headlights. Suddenly, watching this spectacle through the batting of the windshield wipers, I had the appalling sensation that each one of us, isolated in our separate cars and just having seen a Spielberg film, were feeling the same thing. Not in a glorious communal sense that raises our hearts and spirits, but rather, I felt, the film had made us smaller. We had been treated as mass consumers. We had been manipulated. And then she goes on to say, quote, It is not difficult to trigger the same emotion in everyone. What is difficult is to trigger complex associations so that everyone has a different experience. Umberto Eco, in his seminal book, The Open Text, analyzes the difference between closed and open text. In a closed text, there is one possible interpretation. In an open text, there can be many. In the theater, we can choose to create moments in which everyone watching has a similar experience or moments which trigger different associations in everyone. Is our intention to impress the audience or to creatively empower them? Woof. So there's a lot to unpack there, especially around this question of open and closed texts, which I'm not sure I believe in, and which was a conversation I just had with the great Andrew Merrill. I think that any text can be open to multiple interpretations or analyses. And I think that there's a lot of whiteness going on here in terms of this idea that it's not difficult to trigger the same emotion in everyone. I mean, who is this everyone? Who are we talking about here? But I'm going to stick with, maybe we'll have another conversation sometime about the difference between interpretation and analysis. But for now, I want to stick with this question of why that made her mad. Why? Why do we get mad? And the only thing I can think of, first of all, I'm suspicious that it is a particular sector of society that gets mad about this. <laughs> but it seems like if you represent a demographic that has a lot of power and a lot of control, that you might be very unhappy losing control. Like that perhaps the viewer of the emotionally manipulative dance or listener to the emotionally manipulative song or viewer of the movie or the television show or the painting. I don't know. I find, no, I guess visual art could be emotionally manipulative. I mean, all the bloody Jesus paintings I grew up looking at definitely manipulated me into full panic attacks, but that's a story for another day. I think that perhaps folks feel dis disempowered because they're thrust into an emotional space. Uncontrollable weeping, for example, which is, you know, me watching the Netflix series Heartstopper on loop. That to be thrust into an emotional state is destabilizing and disempowering. So the thing that folks may think they need to do is then say, oh, well, that's low art. That piece of art, that work that made me cry when I didn't want to, laugh when I didn't want to, get scared when I didn't want to be, there's something wrong with it. And what's funny is that maybe it holds the most power. So let me uh, contrast this and think about this. Let's think about like a super conceptual dance piece Paul Taylor's work, the one that Louis Horst wrote the blank review of, you know, just an empty space, where it's just like Paul Taylor and a woman, I can't remember who's sitting, and they sit for several minutes or seconds and then blackout, and then they're in another tableau, and it was supposed to be like a comment on gender roles. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but 
a long stillness or a durational performance that doesn't seem like anything is going on that, you know, that could work on your emotions over time, I suppose, if you're patient. But there is this notion of like, if you're doing conceptual dance, the audience perhaps is meant to be very thinky in their experience, have an intellectual experience, which, you know, I dig those too. Have it be about the mind and not the body, even though we know they're connected. Is that safer? Is that a safer thing to do as an artist? I mean, it's unsafe, or certainly it was unsafe when the first folks did it because like, people would come and be like, what the heck is this? And either leave the room or leave the theater or leave a bad review or, I don't know. I don't know. This is the episode of, I don't know, I'm just, I'm babbling. And that's a bonus for me to be able to do that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know where to find me. Seema at odc.dance. You can write me anytime with your thoughts. And maybe the last bonus episode will be a compilation of your thoughts on the tension between the visual and the kinesthetic and dance, on mirror neurons and empathy, or on emotional manipulation and its, um, its virtues. DanceCast is an ODC theater production, curated, written, and edited by Seema Belmar. That's me. With creative consulting from Chloe Zimberg and Sophie Lenanger, and additional support from Matt Shrimplin and Garth Grimble. Please subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. You can find a transcript of this episode and all DanceCast episodes replete with hyperlinks to related content at odc.dance stories. Until next time, dance on.